Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring parapsychology in the United Kingdom. My guest is Professor Chris Rowe, who is currently the president of the Society for Psychical Research, founded in the UK in 1882. He is currently a professor of psychology at the University of Northampton, where he supervises doctoral students working on parapsychological dissertations. He is also a past president of the Parapsychological Association. This interview was conducted in Las Vegas, where we were both present for the Bigelow Institute Essay Competition Awards ceremony. There were some problems with my own audio, so from time to time, you'll see in this video that I'm dubbing in, rephrasing of some of the original questions. But now, I'll switch over to that video. Welcome, Chris. I understand that much of your work has been in addressing the criticisms raised by scholars who claim to be skeptical of parapsychology. So, the starting point for me in that was um, that parapsychology isn't very well covered yeah. in psychology textbooks. And they trot out a set of reasons for that, and they're to do with things like fraud mm -hmm. and poor replication, mm -hmm. problems with something called the experimenter effect. Right. And so then I've published this series of articles which mm -hmm. looks at each of those issues in turn, mm -hmm. and effectively has, has concluded that the problems in parapsychology are less than we see in mainstream social sciences. Mm -hmm. the, the replications we see in parapsychology are what we should get given our effect sizes mm -hmm. and our experimental power. Yep. You know? So we're getting what we should be getting. If mm -hmm. we got any more, that would in itself would be suspicious. <laughs> um, and with experimenter effects, we're far from exhausting mm -hmm. what we call sociological experimenter effects. Mm -hmm. The fact that some people are just better at putting their participants at ease, mm -hmm. enabling them to perform naturalistically. It's all very well if you're doing a perception task and you've got to remember you know, how many words we just presented. But if you're asking somebody to be creative or to be funny, you know, those absolutely depend on the warmth and the rapport yeah. of the context that you set for somebody. Yeah. And without that, you're not going to get an effect. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, you might have conducive experimenters and non-conducive experimenters. It seems obvious. Sure. Some of them are very blatant. I recall uh, talking to a woman who was a participant in, in one of the failures to replicate that mm. took place at York University right. in Toronto. Right. It was an experimental assistant, not the actual experimenter, but right. the, the assistant told her, basically, you don't expect to get any results here. Okay. Yeah. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Of course it is. So, let's start, Chris, with your background as a student at Edinburgh. So, uh, I went up to Edinburgh as an undergraduate student, first of all, to study psychology, uh, basically because I had a careers advisor during my pre-university qualifications who understood what parapsychology was. Uh, from about the age of 14, I decided I wanted to get into parapsychology. Um, and so, when I'd, I'd chosen my A-levels and was looking at a university place, uh, that happened to be the same year that Bob Morris was appointed as the Kersley Professor at Edinburgh. And my careers advisor had knew about this and said, this is the place you want to go. 
Uh, so I duly applied to Edinburgh as one of my five choices. And as soon as I visited Edinburgh on an open day, that was decided that absolutely I would go there or I'd go nowhere. So even as an undergraduate, you intended to have a career in parapsychology. I, I did, but it nearly backfired. So um, as an undergraduate, I started to make a nuisance of myself, uh, approaching Bob and other members of the Kersler team to try and get involved in some way. And eventually they invited me to one of their team meetings. And it just happened to be a meeting when Steve Browdy was talking about one of his new books. And of course, at that age, most of it went completely over my head. I thought, I'm really not cut out for this. Um, the, the intellectual caliber around the table is much greater than I can bring. Um, and it, it nearly ended me before I began. So, but luckily, they encouraged me to come back again another time. And now I, I can just about master some of Steve's finer arguments. You know, here in the U.S., if a young student wants to become a parapsychologist, there, there's no career track possibility at all. The no. standard advice is, you know, get your degree in a conventional field. But in the U.K., that's different now. It is and it isn't. I think the advice um, in the past, certainly when I was 14 to 18, would have been the advice that Rex Stanford used to offer, which was don't think of getting involved in parapsychology until after you've got a doctoral degree and you're established in your career. I don't think that would be the advice we'd give these days. There are no set parapsychology undergraduate programs, but there are psychology programs that include a parapsychology element, and they give people sufficient breadth to allow them to establish a reputation as a competent researcher, a competent scientist, first and foremost. The students that we've worked with at PhD level have always worked in an area of parapsychology that has overlaps with mainstream areas so that they can establish their credentials through that work, as well as some of that work having implications for parapsychology and consciousness studies. Well, what was it like as a student? You, you say Edinburgh. I, I say Edinburgh. I shall have to learn to say it your way. Well, it was a very exciting time. The, the, the Kersler chair was relatively new. Uh, they attracted uh, a lot of the talent from around the UK at that time to come and do PhDs there. And th there was a real kind of vibrant atmosphere. People uh, worked from each other. It certainly was a model that I've tried to cultivate at Northampton. You know, this sense that you don't look to your supervisor only as your, as your only mentor, but rather you have a community of scholars many of whom have different experiences from you, are more experienced per se than you, and you can draw on those and you can test new ideas to see how crazy they are before you actually you know, go to print or present at conference. So I think for me, the, the, um, that kind of nuclear um, element is really important, that critical mass of interest so you have somebody you can share your thoughts with is, is crucial. What was your doctoral work in parapsychology like? Yep. So, so like all the PhDs in the UK, they are doctors of philosophy. Um, I don't think that they give the title of the thesis, but I can't remember. It may give the title of the thesis on there. Um, but no, so it's just a, a conventional PhD. Um, my external was Sue Blackmore, and my internal was somebody who had no background at all in parapsychology, but knew about um, psychosocial interpersonal effects. And, and that's where my PhD focused. So again, with that notion of straddling different areas, my PhD was focused on cold reading mm -hmm. and understanding how people might exploit conventional ways in which people uh, leak information to one another and how that might be capitalized by um, unscrupulous people to feed that back as if it came from a psychic source. Mm 
Uh, so some of that work is very clearly mainstream. It's very much about uh, how susceptible are we to the Barnum effect, that generalized statements we interpret as being especially true of us and less true for other people, even when we kind of recognize they might apply to others, all the way through to how you can exploit information uh, through fraud, you can intelligence gather. But then there was uh, enough scope within that to do more purely parapsychological research as well, to get a sense that maybe, although people are drawing on generalized statements, they're using them in an intuitive fashion. So they're very careful in their selection of what is most appropriate for this particular person. So to give you an example, uh, some of the statements that might not be uh, very impressive to an outsider in a psychic reading might be something like, well, I have your, your mother here with us. Um, she's very concerned about you. You seem to be working too hard and you seem to be ne neglecting your family relations. You really need to take more time out for yourself, focus on self-care, and also on your relationship with your significant other. You're, you're not spending enough time with each other. You're being distracted by work. And of course, that sounds like you know something that's fairly trivial. It's a, you know, a generalization. But it may be exactly the thing that this person needs to hear at this particular time. Mm -hmm. And that the danger is in throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we're too careful in saying we're only interested in unusual statements that apply to very few people as being potentially psychic. Sure, because one might easily say, yeah, that statement is true about any working person. Yes, absolutely. But there may still be something that makes it especially true for this particular person at this time. So lots of times in the old days in particular, the members of the so-called skeptical community would distrust parapsychologists. They would say, if you're a parapsychologist, that means you're already committed. You're a true believer. And from what I'm hearing about your studies at Edinburgh, uh, that's hardly the case. You really learn to see things from a skeptical posture. I, I think so. I think the bottom line is that the world is as it is. And our task is simply to understand and, and describe that. And I think, you know, uh, uh, as a scientist, we, we don't want to spend our life living in delusion. So kind of prior beliefs have to be set aside. You have to be truly skeptical and you have to consider the evidence on its merits. Otherwise, you're mostly wasting your time. But I think that applies both ways. You know, I think Jim Olcott, for example, is a very famously said, well, what kind of world would it be if ESP exists? Well, it would be this world if, if ESP exists. This would be, would be the world that you get if, if ESP occurs. You know, so this idea that, you know, it gives people enormous powers that allow them to, uh, you know, um, fa fail to kind of undermine despots and things like that. That doesn't kind of make much sense, really, I don't think. We don't know the outer limits, though, of uh, what's possible with ESP or how it may even be changing over time. It seems as if the, the world in which we currently live is one in which there is sort of a middling amount. In, in the human population. Exactly, and that has to be our starting point. So it's really important for us to say, well, what do we see in the world around us? In, in, vi in vivo, how does Psy operate? How does it express itself? And say that as our starting point. That constrains the kind of models that we're going to end up with because this is its normal operation. So after you received your doctoral degree, you went on to teach elsewhere in the UK, in Northampton. Yes. So I spent a year at uh, St. Andrews University um, teaching while I finished up writing up the thesis. And then once I'd qualified, I started at Northampton University. And I think in the UK, we benefited to, uh, somewhat from the fact that Bob Morris was very uh, willing to give invited talks around the country. In the wake of his appointment, there was a lot of media interest in him. And he went around the country, basically, um, at his own expense, I think, very often giving the kinds of talks that only Bob can give, that give a very neutral, very reasonable 
portrayal of the nature of parapsychology, what its purpose was, what its aims were, and the methods it used to achieve them. And, and I think through that, he actually lowered the barriers that we would otherwise face, because I think very often people have a misinformed sense of what parapsychology might be, or what parapsychologists might do or be aiming to achieve. Um, and so I think when people like me and colleagues, my peers, were looking to get an appointment elsewhere around the country, that job was made somewhat easier because he'd already kind of laid the groundwork for that. At this point, the Kessler chair was established, gosh, 36 years ago. Yes, and I think, but I think we can differentiate between different periods. I think we can talk about the period where, when Bob Morris was the professor. And I think maybe the agenda there was rather different from how it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Caroline Watt does a fabulous job in responding to media requests and, again, gives a very reasonable, balanced portrayal of the nature of parapsychology. But I think there are fewer of us in the community as a whole in parapsychology who do step forward, step up to the plate and engage with the media to make sure that we... Um, give a counterweight to the standard portrayal, which is of people running around haunted houses um, seeking a verification of prior held beliefs. How many individuals re have now received doctoral degrees on parapsychological dissertations at Edinburgh? Um, I couldn't honestly tell you the figure. Um, I know that Bernard Carr um, tried to calculate that. Um, and I think the figure is around about 50 um, people have qualified through Edinburgh mm -hmm. uh, with their PhDs. Um, Quaintly, we have a family tree so that, that imagines uh, Bob as the kind of uh, forefather, and then we have the next generation, his children, and then subsequent children from there. So in that next generation, there are many people who have supervised their own PhD students to completion. Including yourself. Yes. Yeah, so I have, I think, 16 PhD students who've graduated, and I currently supervise 13 PhD students. So it's probably fair to say that there are a couple hundred people in the UK who have done doctoral research in parapsychology. There is a variety. So some of those are international students. Uh, so people like Nancy Zingroni, um, for example, achieved her PhD at Edinburgh. Uh, we have international students who've worked with us at Northampton. And again, the idea is for this to work, it has to be a diaspora. So it's, it's important that they move on from Northampton and they establish themselves elsewhere. And of course, we see some wonderful examples of that in people like Christine Simmons-Moore, uh, Nicola Holt, and so on, David Luke. Probably just within the UK. I know Christine Simmons-Moore is now teaching at the West Georgia. Yeah. In, in the United States, um, David Luke is in the UK. I, I'm guessing there may be a dozen universities where you can do doctoral research in parapsychology in the UK. Um, I think in theory that is possible. I would say there's probably fewer than half a dozen where that's actually happening at the moment okay. at, at a doctoral level. Um, there, there are more than a dozen places where you can do an undergraduate program, an under, undergraduate module in parapsychology. So that's important to stress. Well, yeah, compared to zero in the United States mm. or, or maybe West Georgia be, being one school in the United States. I mean, one of, one of the coups in the UK was some years ago. That, so our pre-university qualification is called an A-level, an advanced level qualification. And of course, people can take psychology at A-level. And one of the major uh, awarding bodies, their syllabus included anomalistic psychology at one time. And there were 50,000 people per year that would take that particular program. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was really important that the syllabus reflected uh, the narrative for parapsychology, which is start with spontaneous experiences. People have anomalous experiences that occur unexpectedly. Here are some conventional explanations that can account for some of those experiences. And they then segue into formal experimentation that can take those um, normal explanations into account in terms of the checks and controls that you put in place so that you can end up with um, a conclusion which is a little bit more um, robust, a little bit more uh, confidently held than we can draw from spontaneous lived experience. Um, so there was a nice narrative going on there, which for me was really important because it then created a, a cohort of students who then went on to undergraduate study at university expecting to see parapsychology on the program because that was part of their diet at ALA. Um, and that demand makes it easier now for our graduate students to get appointments in places because they have that kind of expertise. But crucially, that's not the only expertise they have. They can also uh, teach in cognitive psychology or psychophysiology or in social psychology because of the kind of training they've had in their PhD. I guess it's fair to say then that in the UK, parapsychology is closely wedded to the curriculum of a psychology program. It, it seems to be, and I think that reflects the heritage. So people have graduated through psychology programs. They've got their PhDs in psychology departments on the whole. And, and so they've then gone on uh, to, to be employed within psychology departments themselves. Uh, there's no suggestion at all that parapsychology is a, a subdiscipline within psychology. It absolutely is multidisciplinary. But I guess we don't have the same degree of mechanism to qualify people in other areas. Naturally. It, I mean, it's very hard to do interdisciplinary studies. Uh, for example, you'll be teaching soon at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where there's a heavy emphasis on Asian philosophies right. and yoga and, 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 and so on. I presume there's not much of that in the UK currently. No, no. no so it's a very westernized psychology program. Mm -hmm. um, there is an interest in, in the UK in transpersonal psychology, which draws inspiration certainly from the great religions, particularly the Eastern religions. Uh, I think the BPS is the only professional body, so the British Psychological Society is the only professional body to have a, a sub-discipline that's recognized, uh, which is for transpersonal psychology. Uh, and that was established by... Um, um, it was David Fontana, established mm. by David Fontana yes. uh, some 20, 25 years ago now. David, who was, preceded you as president of the Society for Psychical Research. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, I've got m many happy memories of council meetings with David at the table. Yeah. Let's also talk about the SPR and its relationship between uh, the relationship between psychical research and parapsychology in the UK. I think. It's important not to draw a hard distinction between the two. I think habitually people have tended to regard them as somewhat different, that uh, parapsychology in the Rhinian tradition is typically experimental in nature and quantitative, and that psychical research is more oriented around fieldwork, so case collection, and also maybe sitting with mediums, for example, as a way of generating data, um, gathering evidence. Um, I think that has become more diffuse that kind of boundary, so more, more permeable. And, and that's partly because psychology in the UK is very influenced by European traditions. So they're very open to qualitative approaches, understanding qualitative, qualitative data as gathered in a rigorous fashion, which stands comparison with quantitative data. Um, so many of the research projects I'm involved with would typically be mixed methods approaches, where there would be a qualitative component and a quantitative component. And I think that starts to ease the tension 
between those two types of psychical research and the experimental work because most of our students, for example, and many practitioners in the UK will tend to do both of those. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're interested in working with mediums, a starting point might be to sit and interview mediums to find out more about their lived experience and use that to inform some of the formal work that you might do later on. That makes perfect sense. But one finds in the history of the SPR uh, a sort of t a tension between the spiritualists mm. and others who are not spiritualists. Mm. Basic, basically, I mean, there's a wide variety of people who are not spiritualists, and, and I suppose there's some variety even within spiritualism, but the spiritualists often think that as a bedrock understanding, we have to accept survival. I think parapsychology is a very broad church. So there are many aspects of parapsychology that don't speak directly to the issue of survival. And so when people are working in those areas, um, I think they're kind of immunized from that kind of a concern. You know, following maybe J.B. Ryan in the sense that if we don't know the limits of telepathy, for example, then we don't know whether the communications from mediums are, constitute evidence for survival or evidence of telepathy between living agents. Yeah. Um, so we've always got those kinds of issues. And in that way, I think you can pacify people who think, well, the core issue is survival and I want to know what your core beliefs are. But that does run counter to the scientific method where whatever beliefs you hold, you've got to leave them at the front door when you enter the lab to do the, um, to do the research. You've got to come into it dispassionately and be led by, be driven by the evidence that you gather. In the UK today, there are some physical mediums. Uh, I've interviewed, for example, Stuart Alexander. He, uh, I think, has been commented on favorably in the SPR literature, although not in detail, not in great depth. Physical mediumship at one time was regarded as fraudulent. Probably that's the, the one word that, <laughs> that you could use to describe it. That it was not accepted at all. What, how, what's the status currently? Well, it depends who one is talking to. So if you speak to mediums, I think still physical mediumship is seen as the acme of, of that particular practice, that one needs to refine one's ability. It's, it's not a matter of an individual's ability per se either. It's a nature of negotiating a relationship with, with um, uh, collaborators on the other side, and it's to do with their refinements as well. That's the kind of model they work with. Yeah. Um, regularly, mediums uh, bemoan to me the lack of good physical mediumships in the current era. And, and they, they attribute that to people really not having the resilience that one used to have. You know, it takes a lot of time working in a closed circle to develop that kind of relationship in order that you can make, you know, make demonstrations that are open to outsiders. We have the one example, really, with the skull phenomena of an instance where people think there may be physical evidence that relates to it. And, and for those reasons, it's been very difficult, I think, for researchers to get access to, to physical phenomena. Uh, personally, I was very disappointed with the skull phenomena, um, in part because it seemed as if they, they weren't even applying the standards that we had seen uh, from the early founders of the SPR 100 years earlier in terms of how to work with practitioners and claimants, in terms of establishing um, checks and balances that rule out uh, glib normal explanations. Mm -hmm. And irrespective of the ultimate ontology of the phenomena produced at skull, the fact is that skeptics are able to dismiss the data because fairly simple checks and balances were not put in place in some of those studies. We have access these days to various forms of cameras that can work under you know, um, darkened conditions. 
th there's a process of negotiation that can take place to see whether the spirit world is willing to cooperate with infrared or with some other, you know, heat, heat measuring cameras and so on. There are mean, ways and means now where we should be able to work in an elevated way compared with how people have worked in the past. Um, as a, as a consequence, we haven't worked with physical mediums at Northampton. And as far as I know, there's very little work across the UK of that type by, by researchers. Um, but there is a, a burgeoning interest in working with mental mediums. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really interesting work that's underway and that's developing. And there's a community which feels it's safe now, again, to work with mediums. Because I think there has been a period where, where it's been something of a taboo to work with mediums. I, it seems really unfortunate to me because what's really important for me in terms of research is that it has ecological validity, that it has an authenticity that at times can be lost if we're chasing after uh, particularly exotic and very clever technologies or methods, but actually inevitably take us further away from the lived experience of people. My feeling is that our starting point as psychologists is to understand people's lived experience and offer them a framework to understand it for themselves. You know, So the start point and the end point is that lived experience for me. And you talked about ecological understanding. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, in part, that comes from uh, J.B. Ryan again, who famously said, if you want to make rabbit stew, you first have to catch a rabbit. And I think at times people hurry too quickly into the laboratory in order to test a phenomenon without truly understanding how that phenomenon occurs in vivo. Because it's, you know, maybe to, to modernize J.B. Ryan's quote, you would say, if you want to keep a rabbit as a pet, you first need to understand rabbits. Otherwise, this rabbit isn't going to survive very long. And how do you do that? Well, you go out into the real world and you see what is the natural modus operandi of, of a rabbit. How does it live its life? How does it engage with its environment? What are the necessary or essential features of that environment for it to thrive? We need to spend more of the time doing that groundwork if we want to be to have any confidence that we can cultivate those phenomena in the laboratory. I'll give you an example. Um, so I've been very interested in uh, Rupert Sheldrake's work on telephone telepathy. Mm -hmm. um, but we felt that we had um, a phenomenon which was relatively under-described. So this notion that the phone rings and then you know who it is before you pick up the phone, that's fairly straightforward. But what is the experience like for real people? So we spent some time running focus groups to, to find out a little bit more about the, the fleshed out understanding of it. And what we discovered was that people recognized it was a very trivial phenomenon, but it's always connected to a whole range of spiritual beliefs. That actually telephone telepathy was an indicator of the degree of connection you have, the emotional connection you have with these other living people. It, so it signified something that went way beyond the trivial phenomenon. Um, they wanted to talk about other occasions when they were the caller rather than the callee. So times when they felt this um, sense uh, of that something was wrong, some kind of sense of unease uh, that built up over time and eventually became fixated on a particular person and they felt compelled to contact that person and almost invariably found that that person was in trouble of some sort. And for them, that was an instance of telephone telepathy. And again, it was indicative of that kind of a relationship. So when we talk to people about these phenomena, they recognize that they were deeply trivial, but they occur in a way that synchronicities might occur. There are a way in which the cosmos tells us that we are a spiritual being. They blip up from time to time because we're too wrapped up in the, the day job, the material world, too busy thinking about the next house or a bigger car or getting a pay rise, thinking about our next holiday, and not spending enough time just being here now as a spiritual being in the world, in the world and, and connected to others. And so these things would happen. In and of itself, it was nothing. But now for a day or two, I pause and I reflect on that a little bit more. 
it suggests when you use the phrase spiritual being a, a transpersonal approach and uh, of course here in the united states i think there's more interest in transpersonal psychology than parapsychology uh, what's the status of transpersonal psychology in the uk I, I would say it's more robust than, than parapsychology's reputation. I mentioned before that they have their own special interest group within the BPS, mm -hmm. which is quite a difficult protracted process to achieve that kind of authorization. Um, and they hold regular conferences and things. And it's probably better represented mm -hmm. across the university departments around the country. Um, I think there's a, there's a nice um, symmetry between the two. There's a, there's a clear, deep interconnection between the two. Um, but they focus on different aspects. So I find myself a little bit, because I'm involved in both communities, uh, as being um, criticized by both communities. So, for example, within the transpersonal community, I criticize them because they don't have a strong enough evidence base, but they have a more nuanced, uh, holistic understanding of phenomena when they occur. And in, in parapsychology, I criticize parapsychological research because it's too um, uh, reductionist still in its kind of experimental quantitative nature, and it fails to take into account the implications of experiences for real people. So, and, and my journey kind of reflects a transition from one place to another. So my background at Edinburgh was in biological sciences, is my first degree, not psychology. Um, so physics, chemistry, biology, and very quantitative and very experimental. My PhD is very quantitative and experimental. And slowly over time, I've arced to a position where now it's about 60-40 qualitative to quantitative that I'm much more interested in uh, understanding people's inner experience and the meaning-making they do around it than simply evidencing that phenomena have occurred under conditions when they shouldn't. Um, why is that? Because I think that's the nature of the phenomena. The phenomena primarily live in the mind of the person who's experienced them. And I think you know we, we have an obligation to help people with, with the... The, the task of wrestling with that rather than just saying this is the evidence base, you know, pro or con. You know, in comparing uh, both transpersonal psychology and parapsychology in the UK and in Europe in general, as opposed to the US, uh, since you mentioned that transpersonal psychology has a recognized subdivision within the British Psychological Association, I'm reminded that in the US, an effort was made to establish something comparable with the American Psychological Association. It was rejected. Mm -hmm. Transpersonal psychology is considered at best a branch of humanistic psychology mm -hmm. here in the U.S. And, and doesn't have that much of a foothold yet in academia. I think there's enormous popular interest, but in the U.S. we don't have centuries of history like you have in Europe, where I think Americans are much more of a modernist, materialist culture. The Europeans have, have a sense that even if things today are modernist and materialist, you know you have centuries of history where it wasn't that way. We don't have that unless we go back to the indigenous population, which is neglected. Well, I think it's a real shame. I think also there's maybe more scope in the UK, especially, to reflect popular interest. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't. There, there are at least 130 universities in the UK alone. So it's highly competitive as an environment to attract students to your programs. We we have an elite group of universities called the Russell Group, and they primarily get their income from research grants, particularly from the government, but other bodies as well. 
But then many of the remaining uh, universities rely, rely primarily on income from students. So people attending their courses and graduating with them. And in that particular market, there is absolutely great scope for people to capitalize on people's kind of own niche interests. Mm -hmm. So I think parapsychology maybe thrives a little bit more in the UK for that reason. That, you know, you can single yourself out as having this unique selling point, which is if you come to us, you can actually understand yourself in a slightly different way from how you might at some of these other universities, because we have a transpersonal component, and we have a parapsychological component that allow you to kind of explore a more transcendent aspect to, to personhood that maybe goes beyond the embodied experience. In this country, I have a unique diploma that says parapsychology, and I'm proud of it. Uh, recently, I was invited to, because of the Bigelow Award, to do a, a keynote address for one of the major conferences on consciousness studies, where they've been open to presentations on parapsychology since they began this conference over 20 years ago. However, the word parapsychology, even though it's recognized by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, for example, where the Parapsychological Association is a member organization, is still considered taboo. And, and so the conference organizer said, we can't use that word to describe your presentation. I gather in the UK it's different. I think we may still have some of the same problems. So again, it's a matter of misinformation. The, there's a popular understanding of what a parapsychologist is and what they might do. And that comes from the popular TV programs that we have. Parapsychologist is not a protected term. So there's nothing you can do about that. But equally in the UK, psychologist is not a protected term. Uh, and the way people get around that is by saying, well, actually, you need to be affiliated to the BPS in some form as a way to credential yourself, to show that you actually have been through a rigorous process and you are qualified to offer advice or to give treatments and so on. Um, so, so I think that's the, the important thing to maybe focus on here is to, to distinguish between people who can use the term freely, parapsychologist, and single out those, for example, who are uh, full members of the PA, which in itself is a member of the AAAS. That, that has to be a way in which we, we kind of single ourselves out. Um, I, I personally am not in favor of changing terminology because it does look suspicious to outsiders. You know, nobody's fooled by moving from flying saucers to UFOs. You know, the same negative aspersions are cast, whatever the label. Um, and I think we, we may be victim to the same thing if we simply change terminology over and over again. Where we might be better placed is if we actually do a better job uh, in kind of um, public information about this. So a, a better kind of public, publicizing job. So to, to explain exactly what it is that parapsychology entails, what are the areas in, in which we're interested? How do we explore them? What is the state of understanding for those phenomena as we're currently are? Again, to show this broad base that actually it isn't a situation that we're so open-minded our brains have fallen out, you know, that actually we're discriminating. Some phenomena have stronger evidence bases than others. That's the kind of thing that we could explore and popularize to, to help ensure that people have a better understanding. I think in that respect, I'm sure it won't be the first time somebody's mentioned in these interviews, we're, we're actually ill-served then by Wikipedia because of the way in which they represent the discipline. And that is the, the go-to um, source of information for many people on the internet. And that's why a resource such as the SPR's Science Encyclopedia is so important in offering scholarly articles, which are still accessible for the general public, which we're hoping will get bumped up in Google searches so they at least appear on the same page as Wikipedia, so that when people are interested, they can truly discover, ah, this is actually what the, the field entails, not this kind of thing. 
And, you know, the SPR has done wonderful work both with the Sci Encyclopedia and with the digitizing of uh, the historical volumes. I love the fact that I can get onto the Lexion program mm. and, and look at over a hundred years of the proceedings in the journals of, of the SPR. I mm. don't know why we haven't done the same uh, with regard to the Journal of Parapsychology here in the U.S. I agree. And, and students these days expect to work with PDFs. People just don't spend time in libraries consulting volumes anymore. You know, and, and th this is a way to make this material more accessible to people. I think that has to be complemented by uh, media such as this. You know, YouTube is a very powerful medium and it's a really important way to provide people with accessible uh, information that's given in a balanced, dispassionate way that allows them to make their, their own minds up about issues or phenomena. And I think it's important, for example, that people can actually see you and have mm. a sense of you as a human yeah. being. As you say, the lived experience of a parapsychologist. Mm. Do you have any sense of the future of parapsychology in the UK? Where do you see it going? Um, I, I think, frankly, it is slow and steady. Uh, I think this is the way of it. I think it, as, as more people qualify and, and have an opportunity to gather their own students, then, then there is a, a possibility of multiplication. The problem is that we're all competing for the same resource. So one of the key difficulties for us always is in finding funding to help support our PhD students. Again, it's not possible for them to access mainstream sources. So we, for example, have a UK government ESRC funding body, um, and, and they fund many PhD studentships across the UK. They certainly wouldn't touch anything remotely to do with these phenomena. So the parapsychology label doesn't matter, but the phenomena themselves would be too much for them. Um, so we have to work creatively with the resources that are available to us. And we're very fortunate to have organizations such as the BL Foundation that we've used very effectively to um, convert awards into studentships um, that have allowed people just that initial foothold. Once they get their PhD, it's a little bit easier for them because they can get academic tenure somewhere usually because of the nature of their training and the fact that we expose them to teaching experience as well during their time with us so that they're more of a rounded academic. They're ready to fit into place, to slot into place when they leave. And so I'm less concerned about their ability to fend for themselves at that stage. But it's almost impossible to fend for yourself when you're looking to get your PhD qualification. And that's really where we need to focus. An interesting area of overlap uh, between with parapsychology is the whole UFO, flying <laughs> saucer, or unidentified aerial phenomena, abductions-related oh. phenomena. Now, it's very interesting. When I began my graduate work in parapsychology, Robert Morris, who uh, oh. before he went to Edinburgh, was on my doctoral committee. But when I began probing a an instance of a... a fellow with psychokinetic abilities who, like Uri Geller, mm. claimed to have some sort of relationship with UFO phenomena, and I began documenting that, Robert Morris felt the need to withdraw mm. from my committee. What about in the UK? Uh, is there uh, an interest in UFOs? Can academics look at it? And how, how is it viewed by parapsychologists? I think there probably is a community who are interested in, in UFOs and, and experiences related to those. Uh, it wouldn't be something that I would recommend. Uh, I think I'd follow Bob Morris primarily for pragmatic reasons. You know, I think we, we are fighting enough battles as it is without opening an, another front up. Um, and I think that would be what would result from that. Um, 
the, the more we can normalize the work that we do, because um, there are two aspects of this, that there are the implications of our discoveries, and they may have profound implications that, that are far from normal. But at the moment, the focus is very much on normalizing practice. So our parapsychologists in the UK are just just doing the, the daily business. They're, they're just working as normal. Um, and, and so they're very like their colleagues. And, and I think that helps to normalize the phenomena that they work on if, when they're based in the department, people see that they're working nine to five, they hold down seminar hours with undergraduate students, they work in the lab, they use statistics the same as everybody else. And it's in that rubbing shoulders with other people slowly over time, people might be just a little bit warmer to the notion that this is something that's appropriate and, and should be where you are, you know. So in other words, mediums and seances are a little more acceptable than aliens and flying saucers. They are, but even though we'd be very careful about how we describe what we do. So what we have are a select part, uh, population who have a range of experiences in many other circumstances will be pathologized. And yet these people present as psychologically very healthy. In fact, they present as more healthy than the average person, the norms. So there's something here that's of interest to our clinical colleagues. So how is it that we have a group of people here who hear voices, they have embodied experiences that they don't identify as self, and yet they're highly functional people, they're very well regarded within their communities. So what is it about the process by which they manage their experiences that allows them to be functional, when other people who hear voices, for example, find them very distressing and intrusive and, and dysfunctional? So, so if we model the kind of things that we do in those ways, we discover something which is palatable to our colleagues, but also still does service to the people we represent. So that does help, for example, um, neonite, neophyte mediums, people just starting out who might visit a, a psychotherapist or a counselor to say, I'm really struggling. I'm hearing voices and the voices claim to be deceased relatives and they're telling me they're okay. We might suddenly come across an enlightened counselor who's actually been trained or heard about some of the work that we do and, and knows that this is actually quite a normal, healthy experience particularly among people who are bereaved, that it's a passing process. It doesn't necessarily signal anything of this person long-term. The voices may dissipate if they acknowledge them, you know, and, and recognize, and it helps with their bereavement process. So in, in those ways, I think we can do a real service for people, you know. I know in Germany, uh, Walter von Lukadu uh, had a program offering parapsychological counseling to people who let's say we're disturbed by poltergeists and other mm -hmm. sorts of paranormal events. Uh, so there, one would think of that as a clinical track uh, with a parapsychological emphasis. Yes. Do you have that in the UK? I know in Germany, uh, Walter von Lukadu uh, had a program offering parapsychological counseling to people who, let's say, were disturbed by poltergeists and other mm -hmm. sorts of paranormal events. So there, one would think of that as a clinical track uh, with a parapsychological emphasis. Yes. Do you have that in the UK? Yes, and I think it's really important. Again, that's got to be a developing area. I think it's one of those areas where we have a natural affinity with existing organizations. So there's an organization in the UK called the Spiritual Crisis Network, which doesn't have any links to parapsychology directly, but does have links with um, professional psychiatrists who are interested in spirituality. Mm. And so they're coming from that direction. But there is a natural meeting point here for us. And, and so absolutely, there's something here that can be really fruitful for us both in allowing us to map experiences in an ontologically neutral way, but ways which are beneficial for the experiencer, for the patients or the clients. And I think that's sometimes what's missing. What we've discovered, for example, is that there is still a taboo around paranormal phenomena. 
that, that counselors and, and psychotherapists are really afraid to acknowledge that somebody discloses an experience such as this. So you're going through bereavements and your, your father-in-law is coming through. You've had an apparitional experience of them just to tell you that they're fine, everything's okay and not to worry. Even disclosing that is so beyond the pale for many counselors that they shut down that part of the conversation, which is incredibly perverse. It's ironic given that what we're trying to do is create a protected space in which there are no taboos, in which anything can be discussed. Because it's through the process of, of objectifying it, putting it into a public forum in a one-to-one -one dyad that allows you to navigate around the experience and to process it in a way that can be healthy for later on. If you're saddled with it, if you, only you can carry this experience and you feel uh, that you're not permitted to disclose it to anybody, then it festers. And the experience actually can lead to distress and, and ill health. You know, those are real concerns. To give you a quick example, uh, I was talking about this yesterday to colleagues. Um, I, I ran a very small study looking at near-death experiences. I had a research assistant who conducted the interviews for that. And she spoke with one woman who 20 years previously had had um, a near-death experience during childbirth. She'd lost a lot of blood. She, was, she became critical. They managed to re revive her and the child, so it had a happy ending. But she described her experience to my assistant. And at the end of the interview, the, the interview, interviewer was relatively inexperienced, so everything was quite formal, you know. Uh, but the interview passed on, and then the recording stopped, and they carried on with a cup of tea to have a debrief about how things were. And the, and the um, experiencer was a little bit concerned. Well, was that okay? Was that the kind of thing you wanted? My researcher was able to say, well, yeah, actually, it sounded like a very classic kind of NDE. You reported many features that are extremely common that many, many other people have reported. And the relief was palpable in the experiencer. She'd never disclosed that experience to anybody, not her husband, not a close friend, not a priest or, or, or a vicar. Um, and she'd carried that experience for 20 years, fearful that it was indicative of some kind of pathology, that in losing all of that blood, something had happened to her brain that meant that she was wrong in some way. And it was only when we could acknowledge that her experience was valid without at all endorsing any possible associated beliefs to that. So you don't need to endorse that there is an afterlife you know, that you will go there when you die. You can simply say, this is a common, healthy experience that many people have shared and they've been able to carry on with their life successfully afterwards. That is sufficient. And I think that's got to be our starting point. Mm -hmm. That's not to neglect the ontological questions. They are crucial. But at the moment, we need to normalize the experiences first and foremost. I know whenever I speak in public, and it's true of every parapsychologist I know in the U.S., People come up afterwards and say, I want to tell you my experience. Mm -hmm. And they almost always preface it by saying, I've never told anyone else yeah. before. Mm -hmm. You get that? Uh, oh, absolutely. And, and I've got the experience that's shared by many colleagues as well, which is I, I've given talks to other psychology departments around the UK. So many universities have an uh, invited speaker program. And at the end of that um, talk, very typically, somebody will come up to me and say, well, don't tell these guys. But I, I just want to share this with you. And then one of the other guys comes over and says exactly the same thing. Don't tell anybody else, but this has happened to me. You know, so it's as if we're all sharing this conspiracy, you know, that this is, this is something that happens to nobody but me. And every person to whom it has happened is alongside other people who believe the same thing. It's only me that has this, you know, and I don't know what to do with it. And it's often because they're afraid of being judged. Yeah. And, and the two responses always are ridicule. And, and pathologization. Mm -hmm. And they're both incredibly strong. So again, some of the neophyte mediums we work with, that has been their family experience and their friend network experience is that they, they disclose in a very tentative way 
you know, elements of these experiences kind of at, in the shallow end of their experiences. They don't talk about the deep end stuff. Um, and even then, if they get the response, which is some kind of rebuke, don't be so silly, you know, that's nonsense, you're crazy, that, you know, you're silly for believing that kind of rubbish, you know, they learn to shut down. And they shut down successively with different communities and parties until eventually they're completely shut down and they can speak to nobody about these experiences. And that's why many mediums, when they come to the Arthur Findlay College in the UK, it, it's a feeling like coming home because they're surrounded by other people who've had similar experiences and they feel like they can disclose now knowing that somebody finally truly understands. Well, and I feel that way every time I gather with other parapsychologists. Yeah. yeah. So my sense then is that because parapsychology is spreading slowly but surely in the, in the UK, that these kinds of conversations will become more acceptable across the country. We hope so. I think it's unfortunate that sometimes the UK is seen as a success story because I think really it's a failure story in many other places. I remember going to BL conferences, for example, where we have a very nice mix of neuroscience presentations and parapsychology presentations. And in one session, uh, there will be more, more people acknowledged from a neuroscience community than are um, active in parapsychology as a whole. So two or three labs would give their presentations, and even within those labs alone, there are more people active than there are in the whole of parapsychology. Yeah. What, what I'm doing is just normal business. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing that any established academic should be doing, is supervising PhD students, getting them through to establish their own academic careers. And really, we need to look around and say, well, why isn't this happening everywhere else? Why are more people not seeded in departments? Why are they not developing their own supervisory program? You know, our, our biggest asset is in human resources. It's not necessarily our knowledge base, because irrespective of the state of that knowledge base, if there are no people to bang the drum, the whole field will disappear. So it's really important as a community that we invest more time and resources into supporting that next generation. Which requires funding. And now you've mentioned the Bial Foundation a couple of times. Probably our viewers are unfamiliar with right. them. They're based in Portugal. That's right. So uh, basically, it's a pharmaceutical company who has a charitable arm, and that charitable arm is interested in exploring consciousness, nature of consciousness. And it focuses particularly on two aspects of that. So what can we learn from the mainstream, from a neuroscientific approach? And then also, what can we learn from parapsychological experiences it, as more of an extended mind approach? They're one of the major funders of parapsychology across the world. I, I think they've saved the discipline in many ways, absolutely, over the last few years. Um, that they support perhaps 50 or 60 projects per cycle. They have a cycle every two years. Uh, and those uh, projects are, are what populate our journals and fill our conference programs. You know, th those are the active work that, that we see. Well, Chris, is, is there anything else you'd like to add about your work in the UK? I don't think so. I came with an open mind. I was really happy to chat about wh whatever you wanted to chat. And it was really good to talk to you. It's been a real pleasure. I want to thank you very much for being with me. And certainly, I would encourage students, people who are interested in pursuing a career in parapsychology, that to look towards possible educational opportunities in the UK. They'll be more plentiful there right now than in the US, where they're very rare and hard to find. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.